Welcome to the ACAM Sanction Space podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk. Joining me today is Edmund Fitton-Brown, a former British diplomat. And importantly for today's discussion, Edmund was the UK ambassador for Yemen from 2015 to 2017. Post-diplomatic service, he was an expert and indeed coordinator with the ISIL Al-Qaeda Taliban UN sanctions monitoring team. Now based in the US, Edmund holds advisory and fellowship positions with the Counter-Extremism Project, the Middle East Institute, the Sofon Center, and New America. Edmund, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justine. It's good to be here. Great. So look, we are going to talk about the Houthis today. But before we get into too much detail, I want to start off with some context for listeners. I was reviewing one of your YouTube videos where you talked about how the Houthis have always been a worry for anyone concerned about the well-being of the Yemeni people, the stability of the Iranian Palincia, and security of the Red Sea. So for those who are not familiar with the Houthis, just explain a bit about their origin, aspirations, essentially, who are they and what do they stand for? So uh, they are a I think one could describe them as a sect within a sect, in a way. Yemen is a Muslim country, of course, but the majority population of Yemen is Sunni. A large minority is the Zaidi branch of Islam, which is, in some ways, can be described as Shia approximate. It has its own distinctive features. And then within the Zaidi population of Yemen, you have a much smaller group calling themselves Ansar Allah the partisans of Allah, the Houthis, they are centred upon a far northern province, very close to the Saudi border, completely landlocked, mountainous, called Sada. That is where the Houthi movement originates from. And they have their own leader or guide, who these days is a comparatively young man called Abdul Malik al-Houthi. The fact that they regard themselves as separate, as a sort of elite with a very strong religious identity and a very aggressive form of extremism, which is very pointedly against Israel, against Jews, against uh, America. That uh, helps to explain how it was that they came to be in a sort of posture of rebellion against Ali Abdullah Saleh, when Ali Abdullah Saleh was the president of Yemen, which he was up until 2011. Ali Abdullah Saleh himself was a Zaidi, and Yemen has usually been governed by Zaidis. But the Houthi rebellion was something which Ali Abdullah Saleh kept trying to put down. He kept trying to impose his will in the far north, couldn't do it. And they talked about this series of wars um, that he fought against the Houthis, intending to suppress the rebellion, but unsuccessful. Then everything changed um, at the time of the Arab Spring. And Ali Abdullah Saleh himself ceased to be president of Yemen. He was replaced by a Sunni from the south called uh, Hedi, President Hedi. And Ali Abdullah Saleh was not happy with being sidelined. And so he decided that in spite of his historic blood feud, really, with the Houthis, that he would patch it up with them and that they would team up against uh, the new administration in Sana'a. And that was what gave the Houthis wings, as it were, because once they had Saleh's support and Saleh colluded with them to make sure that uh, loyalists in the Yemeni military would side with them, the Houthis were then able to take over most of the country, including the capital. 
Gosh, that, that is um, fascinating and a real sort of whirlwind tour of who they are and what do they stand for in many ways. But essentially, they've really come to prominence, including front page headlines since the October the 7th Hamas attacks and subsequent war in the Gaza Strip. This has really taken security concerns to a whole new level. Just talk us through the complexity of the Houthi relationships within the region and especially in respect to their alliances with Hamas and other groups. You're right. This is a a new level of prominence and publicity that they've achieved. A lot of this is not new in other respects. You know, they have this history of being very anti-Israeli, so that, as I mentioned. Also, they have a history of harassing shipping in the Red Sea. They've done it frequently over the years. So this is not, again, not a completely new tactic that they're trying out. And in terms of their relationships, as I said, they come from a broadly Shia sect within Yemen, and they are close to Iran. People differ as to the extent to which they are a fully controlled proxy of Iran. Most people would, I think, agree they're not as strategic an arm of the Iranian regime as Lebanese Hezbollah is. Nevertheless, they're very closely associated with Iranian thinking, Iranian positions. They're very much indebted to Iranian support and supply. Uh, Many of them have studied in Iran and increasingly as they have adopted these very anti-Western positions, uh, that has strengthened the relationship with Iran. It's made them more and more sort of co-belligerents, as it were. Now, of course, for years, since 2015, the Houthis have been locked in a war with Saudi Arabia because the Houthis failed to take over the whole of Yemen and the government of Yemen, which had had to retreat to Aden in the south, asked for Saudi assistance. And so the Saudis invited in by a sovereign government to help it defend itself, ended up in this long war with the Houthis. And the Saudis in that had some allies, the Emirates and others. But that was obviously a big feature of the sort of the way the Houthis were orientated. They were mainly against Saudi Arabia and against the UAE and and the other allies who who were supporting President Hadi at that time. So that meant that the Houthis were not particularly focused on what was happening more widely in the world, in Israel, Gaza, or uh, in the West. But then, of course, the 7th of October happened, and the Houthis saw this as an opportunity to lay down a challenge to the international community to flex their muscles. And they claim that what they're doing in the Red Sea is intended to punish Israel and force Israel to enter a ceasefire with Hamas. It's important, of course, to remember that Hamas is also a a militia that is supported by Iran. Iran runs a number of militias. It calls it the Axis of Resistance. And this is a sort of an Iranian-coordinated anti-Western and anti-Israel front in which Hamas is one participant, Lebanese Hezbollah is another, the Iraqi Shia groups are another, and the Houthis in Yemen are another. So the Houthis have taken this very forward position this axis of resistance position and that they were going to force the Israelis into a ceasefire. But the reality is, of course, that the Houthis want to strengthen their own reputation, their own publicity, and their actual mechanism for doing this, threatening the shipping in the Red Sea, is not primarily going to hurt Israel, because Israel has Mediterranean ports. It doesn't need to use the Red Sea. Whereas 
The country that will be mainly hurt by this is Egypt. Egypt, which is heavily reliant on the revenues from the Suez Canal and the Suez Canal now being much less used than it was. That is a serious blow to the Egyptian economy. So that's a real complex network of relationships and dynamics that you've set out there. But you've also described the Houthis in the past as fairly independently minded and often misunderstood. And I was a bit intrigued by this. What what did you actually mean by independently minded and misunderstood? Well, independently minded, as I said, they're not a an unthinking tool of Iran. They have their own agenda and they're capable of insisting on doing things that they want to do, even if it's not something that is pre-agreed with the Iranians. And I think if the Iranians pushed them too hard to do something that was not in their interests, I think they would refuse. That's what I mean by independent-minded. The other thing is that the point about misunderstood, I don't mean that in a positive way, (laughs) if I may say so. Misunderstood as being freedom fighters, misunderstood as being plucky underdogs or something of that kind. This has been a feature of a lot of media reporting of the conflict between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia, which has portrayed a sort of David against Goliath sort of scenario where the Houthis are sort of, you know, the plucky uh, resistance to the overbearing and uh, heavily armed Saudis. Uh, And in fact, of course, the, the dynamic in Yemen is the reverse of that. The Houthis were the people who took over the country or most of it in the most brutal way with uh, very, very uh, aggressive tactics. They arrest people, they torture people, they kill people. They kill people for fun. They deploy snipers in civilian environments and simply shoot people for fun. There are a number of uh, documented examples of this, but the worst was a hospital in Aden where a Houthi uh, sniper was deployed on the roof opposite the hospital and simply was picking off doctors and nurses if they showed themselves at the windows that he could see. The Saudis, meanwhile, got involved because they were asked to protect, defend, and ultimately to secure the position of the internationally recognized government of Yemen, of President Hadi at the time, and then found themselves, you know, effectively caught in a war that they couldn't get out of. So that's what I mean by misunderstood. You know, this this is not quite the David and Goliath contest that was described. Let's turn to the Houthis as a terrorist group. So over the years, there's been an awful lot of toing and froing on whether they should be designated or shouldn't be designated as a terrorist organisation. Most recently, we've seen the US redesignate them as a specially designated global terrorist group. Why all of this uncertainty, given just what, how you've described the situation? Why have we seen this scenario of them being designated, then de-designated, then redesignated, which is the case we've seen over recent years? It's quite complicated and it involves various international actors who have a stake in this. So from the point of view of the Americans, uh, the Americans make their own minds up about who they designate as terrorists and you know whether they put them on their you know sort of rewards program and things like that. Initially, the Americans were reluctant to designate the Houthis as a terrorist group because they wanted to emphasize the peace talks, the peace negotiations that have been going on sporadically since 2015. The idea was that, you know, if you designate people as terrorists, you make it harder for them to travel, you make it harder for people to talk to them. 
and therefore maybe you make peace more difficult. There's also a humanitarian argument here, which is that uh, it's harder to deal with people who are designated as terrorists uh, for the purposes of humanitarian delivery. And of course, uh, Yemen is one of the world's most acute humanitarian crises with perhaps maybe the highest number of acutely food insecure people of any country in the world. So that was the sort of hesitation that people felt. Nevertheless, just before leaving office, President Trump did decide to designate them as a terrorist group. And then only a month later, one of President Biden's first acts was to reverse that designation. Now, he was holding to, if you like, that traditional US view that it wasn't helpful to designate them. But since the 7th of October and this sort of ramped up and very lawless challenge to uh, shipping in the Red Sea involving a lot of you know, classic terrorist activity uh, using missiles, drones and things like that to try to damage or sink non-combatant uh, ships, uh, just ordinary commercial shipping, that I think pushed the Biden administration over the edge of making that designation. I should mention also the UN has had sanctions on the Houthis for a long time, but it, they were very targeted sanctions, and it was only a couple of named Houthis. It wasn't the whole organization. Uh, and of course, they also sanctioned Ali Abdullah Saleh while he was still alive and one of his relatives. However, in Resolution 2624 of 2022, this was passed when the United Arab Emirates was a temporary member of the UN Security Council and after the Houthis launched a lethal uh, attack on uh, Abu Dhabi, the UAE used its position on the Security Council to secure that resolution, uh, which did go through, drew on the previous sanctions regimes affecting Yemen, but it also described the Houthis as a terrorist group for the first time in a UN document. So... I want to come back again to the US designation that we've just recently seen. So the US designation on the 17th of January. What's really interesting about this, this is the first time we've seen delayed implementation. So it's actually was delayed by 30 days, 30 days advance notice. So the actual designation and all the general licenses and guidance around this designation do not actually come into effect until February the 16th. And we're recording this on February the 14th. So Delayed implementation, you know, how important do you think that's going to be for the humanitarian situation? Because that was very much behind this thinking of why the delay. Do you just want to talk us through the humanitarian aspects and whether the delay will actually really make any difference? I don't see the delay making very much difference in that respect. I mean, there are a number of things to be said about the Houthis and humanitarian aid. Um, first of all, they are some of the worst abusers of humanitarian aid in the world and their, their aid diversion record and their record of intimidation of humanitarian workers is absolutely shameful. Secondly, they will happily take it out on humanitarian workers because of their nationality. Even though you, know, you might be a British humanitarian worker or, or a US humanitarian worker, you might have no sympathy at all for the governments in London or Washington, D.C., you're simply trying to deliver humanitarian aid, and yet the Houthis have uh, have uh, deliberately um, said that you know that they will uh, not allow British or American uh, humanitarian workers. And then, thirdly, this is the key point in terms of accessing the Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. 
And bear in mind, the Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen are broadly the northwest of the country. Most of the Red Sea coast, including the port of Hodeidah, which is the nation's main port, and then uh, Sanar, of course, and the mountainous northwest. So if you're going to get into the uh, Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen with humanitarian aid, uh, your key access point is the port of Hodeidah. And the problem with the Houthi tactic in the Red Sea from the humanitarian delivery point of view is that it is making it unsafe for shipping to come to the Red Sea, which you have to do if you're going to reach the port of Hodeidah. In other words, this sort of reckless showmanship to pose as champions of the Palestinians is actually directly preventing humanitarian aid from accessing the Red Sea and the port of Hodeidah and therefore reaching the Yemeni people who need it. One of the things we've seen alongside the group's terrorism designation is we're seeing a much more concerted energy focused towards those who are part of the financial network. So we've seen you know, sanctions targeting those engaged in the financing, supporting the network. You know, thinking about listeners to this podcast, many of them are in the compliance space and they'll be thinking, what do I do? Where should I be looking for Houthi money? You know, and I just really want to ask you is what stands out most to you? What would be the message you would say to them? Yes, I I mean, I think the risk is in comparison, perhaps with some other areas, maybe lower that you would find yourself sort of unwittingly in breach of these sanctions. So first of all, Remember that the Houthis are functioning as a pseudo-government. They have control of Sanaa. They have control of most of the Yemeni population, albeit not most of the surface area of Yemen. What that means is you're dealing a little bit like in the case of Afghanistan, dealing with de facto authorities, and they have seized the central bank. They are controlling the currency. They are able to control and tax, trade, and other services, uh, and other sort of, you know, just to tax people in in general. And therefore, you're not in this sort of classic terror finance space where you are looking at a group like Al-Qaeda and people trying covertly to move donations or other forms of money um, to terrorist groups that have no ability to raise money through conventional means. So that's an important qualifier. The other qualifier is the humanitarian qualifier. We, you know, remember that there is now a, a uniform sanctions exemption for all humanitarian aid for all UN sanctions regimes. So if activity is intended to support, financial activity intended to support aid delivery, you're not taking a risk. There shouldn't be a risk. That's not to say that banks won't look, you know, banks will always tend to be hesitant when they look at conflict zones. But in truth, there isn't a risk there. Nobody is going to be accusing somebody of non-compliance if they are banking uh, humanitarian and relief efforts. So that's another sort of thing to keep in mind. Nor do people want to starve Yemen of trade. Sanctions are not against Yemen. They're not intended to harm Yemenis or to harm the Yemeni economy. The idea is to try to prevent the Houthis from developing their war machine and developing their finances that they can uh, deploy for illicit purposes. Now, that's a very difficult challenge, as I said, because of their status as the de facto authorities in Sana'a. 
But I think what it points to is that the sanctions enforcement effort is more likely to be looking at things like the arms embargo or indeed potentially travel ban when it comes to the travel by particular individuals. Not a big deal with the Houthis. They're not big travellers. But the arms embargo, that is a big deal. And there is a lot of supplies reach the Houthis, uh, military supplies, um, both uh, through Iranian shipments by sea and also by land through Oman. And so I think that is where I would be focusing the sanctions enforcement. Thank you. And very, very quickly, the Houthi revenue streams, is there much sort of crossover with other networks within the region or are they quite independent? And just very quickly on this point. I believe they're quite independent. I'm not aware of the Houthis' significant financiers for other groups, and they don't need help from other groups because they have the resources of a pseudo-state. And the other thing I want to ask really quickly, because I know so many people are going to be interested about the Houthis, but it was the Houthi misuse of technology, because you've written and spoken a bit about that. How does that present itself? Yeah, it's that's, that is... Um, some work that uh, CEP has been doing, the CEP for whom I'm senior advisor these days. We did one uh, particular webinar recently, which talked about the way that the Houthis had been misusing information and communications uh, technology. And it's important to remember that, first of all, they use their control of the communications sector in Yemen as a tool of oppression. You know, so, you know, you, you're controlling uh, how people access the Internet And you're also using that both to raise money because you charge them for the service, but also there's the monitoring dimension of it and clamping down on people who uh, are accessing things that you don't want them to or saying things that you don't want them to. That's a big part of what they did. This is an interesting feature of the Houthis because although they have this sort of image as sort of desert warriors or, you know, sort of um, scrappy fighters, and they are that, uh, they certainly are uh, effective fighters. It's slightly counterintuitive that they should be as effective as they are in sort of seizing control of key strategic levers in the state. So when they went into Sanaa, they were very quick to get hold of all of the relevant ministries and the central bank. They knew exactly what they were doing in terms because, of course, once you control the civil service, you also control people's pay packets. And, they, you know, they're only going to get money if they work for you in the way that you want them to. They did it with the ICT sector as well. And of course, they then deploy these technologies uh, for things like drones, which they then use for military and terrorist purposes. So in just bringing this to a close, I have a final question. Well, actually, if I'm truthful, I think it's probably two questions. But over the years, you've had much direct contact with the Houthis, including negotiating peace talks with them. From your perspective, what has stood out most about their characteristics and what should we be thinking of for the future? So they're very difficult to negotiate with. They're very aggressive and capricious. Um, They'll indulge in the full sort of range of um, arriving late, storming out and changing their negotiating position at a moment's notice. Um, So that side of it was was obviously uh, interesting and uh, challenging. You know, what really struck me was how open they were about their brutality. You know, they, they wanted you to know that they were absolutely ruthless and that they didn't care how many Yemenis died. Um, you know, what they wanted was power and respect and they wanted to uh, humiliate their opponents. And that would obviously primarily be Saudi Arabia in recent years. But that would, of course, it would include uh, Israel and it would include the West because of this mantra that they have about, you know, death to America and uh, 
Israel and curses upon the Jews and all of that. So they don't leave you a lot of space. It makes the negotiation highly transactional. Now, as long as you are being highly transactional, then you can get things done with them. So, you know, my, my first negotiation with them was actually to get them in touch with the United States, which at that time they were not. And they didn't want to talk to the Americans. There was, they had a sort of a great Satan sort of thing going uh, with that. But, you know, I was able to either persuade them or at any rate sort of crystallize their recognition that they must talk to the Americans because without talking to the Americans, you know, they, would, they simply wouldn't be able to uh, achieve anything that they wanted to achieve in Yemen. So that was successful because it was something that they wanted anyway, really. And then when we came to peace talks in 2016 in Kuwait, that was the interesting moment because usually with the Houthis, they just don't make concessions. And they'll sort of, the best you'll get is that they'll think about something uh, they'll look to pocket a concrete concession from the other side uh, in exchange for considering something, which they then won't do. There was this brief exception, and I think there have been one or two examples since, but I haven't had direct sight of them. But in 2016, when they got serious about possibly making peace with Saudi Arabia in Kuwait, they actually did some things, again, all very transactional. They would take prisoners back from the Saudis, in return for returning uh, Saudi bodies of dead Saudi soldiers. They also, in a more meaningful way, they did embark on briefly on a programme of uh, demining uh, areas that they had mined on the border. Um, so at that time, you knew they were serious because transactional pace stepped up. And at that moment, it looked as if they were ready to accept the peace deal that was on offer, which was a very favourable deal for them. But... Of course, in the end, they walked away from that. Edmund, you know, I could really talk to you for hours because I think your experience in Yemen is just so interesting and so relevant to what's happening today. But we do need to draw this to a close. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thanks, Justine. It's been a pleasure. And a reminder to listeners, if you want to know more about the themes discussed today, then tune into our monthly Sanctions Watch and full programme of masterclasses and webinars. And actually this month I will flag that our monthly Sanctions Watch will actually be having members from the UN monitoring team to talk about the latest terrorist financing trends. So tune into that. But for now, thanks for listening and please do sign up to the Sanctions Space podcast. <laughs>